From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Colin Donovan. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. And welcome again to Open Line here on EWTN, the Global Catholic Radio Network. Today is Friday, therefore it is going to be our Vice President of Theology, Mr. Colin Donovan, in just a few moments here. Very excited about uh, a couple of things on the uh, on the scene here for all Catholics. We'll talk about that in a moment. Let me give you that phone number first of all. Colin is here to answer your questions at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Or if you're living uh, listening outside of uh, the U.S. or Canada, you'll want to dial the number 1 and then 205 205- Two seven one two nine eight five, and of course you can always send us an email. The address for that: openline at ewtn.com. Openline at ewtn.com. Be sure to put Colin or Friday or Theology in the subject line. We'll uh, get that to the right show on the right day. Colin, how are you? Doing pretty good. Trying to stay cool in this oppressive heat we've been having. Are you hydrating, young man? I'm trying to. Good. Glad to hear that. I'd like to hydrate at the beach, but unfortunately, that's not possible. Well, at least not today. Not today. Not today. Yes, but exactly. you're here, and that's the important thing. Uh, big day for Catholics. Uh, a couple of big things going on, right? Yeah. I, I think for me personally and professionally, uh, it's not insignificant. We had the 7th and 100th anniversary of the canonization of St. Thomas Aquinas yes. on Wednesday. And St. Thomas has been uh, certainly a formative part of my intellectual life in in terms of even before I knew I was going to study theology formally, uh, took a great interest in him as found in different books like Dr. Ott's Ott's Dogmatics and, you know, the kinds of things that serious Catholics often have on their on their shelves. But then during the, you know, study to see to see the way he approaches problems because he has as much a method as he has answers to questions. He proposes the answers that he does in works like the Summa and, and many other works. That's mm-hmm. just one of the opera omnia, the, all, the, all the works of Aquinas. And he proposes them with humility as an argument among others who argue about it, whether taking information from Scripture, the Fathers, and answering competing questions. So he takes a scientific approach to the answering questions. But he always recognizes and defers that the authority on faith is the church, the magisterium, uh, and even says in one part of the Summa that uh, if you don't, if you willfully reject something that the church teaches, knowing that is what the church teaches and therefore obligatory, Mm -hmm. you don't have faith because faith leads us to adhere to all that the church teaches. Sure, sure. But I think, you know, the the other element of that is his is a stage in the intellectual life of the church. The early church didn't have the benefit of Aquinas. Uh, 
We didn't have the benefit of a philosophical basis to the faith, which uh, initially Plato would would uh, give with the, those who used his I, his concept of ideas and forms and so on to 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 sort of find a rational basis to explain things that were that are taught by the church. Uh, and with Aquinas, you have the introduction of Aristotle uh, in terms of looking at wh- what's called a realist philosophy as opposed to an idealist philosophy, one which deals mostly with this intellectual level of idea. With Aquinas, it's that nature itself teaches us things, and from the nature of things, we can take away uh, information. We derive our concepts about them. And it was applied very fruitfully, first by Albert the Great, the teacher of Aquinas, and then by Aquinas himself, and then by what is what are called the scholastic theologians of the late Middle Ages who then built up the basically the corpus of Catholic medieval theology, not trying to, to, to teach in the sense that they did with authority. They'd teach with the authority of reason by argument and explanation. Mm-hmm. And Aquinas, among all of those, had, did it par excellence. Um, and using all the data that was available, as I said, the fathers and sacred scripture, uh, and so he has been down through the ages considered the, the common doctor of the church, that all of the, in addition to his, uh, the title of the angelic doctor, if you're looking for the most erudite theologian, the most learned one who can explain the faith, Aquinas is at the top of most lists, uh, but more importantly at the top of the church's list. Mm. And that's important to know because in in an age when another set of ideas are being introduced. So today, in the last hundred years or so, we there has been less concern about the natures of things and the beings of things and the essential elements of things, but rather how existence manifolds itself. <clears throat> and so what's been called the exit, existential question. Mm-hmm. that existence has become the most important part. So you have the nature of something, man. Yeah. Man has an existence when that it's a real a real creature, a real being, a particular man, and he lives his life. So should he be guided by his by his nature alone or is his existence in some way revelatory and 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 helpful for him. It certainly teaches us things on the experiential level, but how do you call those? How do you sort through them? How do you distinguish true from false? Because certainly we learn many things from the world and from our own experience, some of which teach us true things that are generally true, or they may teach us particular things in a circumstance that is true in circumstances that are similar, but they don't teach universally true things. And unfortunately, our age has become one in which this existential element predominates, especially in the secular world. They're they're not interested in the natures of things, the nature of man, the nature of woman, the nature of of theological realities in many cases. But more important, how it's lived out and what's important to people and how do they experience, as if that could somehow be severed and separated from the, the nature of a thing. And I think in this, perhaps history will look back and say that the guide, the best guide for the church in integrating appropriately this existential or subjective element will be Pope John Paul II, who in his writings showed that 
When trying to understand man, we obviously must know about his personal subjectivity, about how he receives the faith, how he receives information, all of these kinds of things. These are pastorally helpful. But they're only helpful if you have a truth guide. And the truth guide, first of all, intellectually, is going to be basically Thomas's metaphysics and anthropology. The realist understanding of, the, of, of being and natures. And the ultimate truth is not even those. It's what the church teaches and which we are obliged to by faith. So there's a clear hierarchy of truth here that mm-hmm. one has to be guided by in one's life. The faith, first of all, the philo- philosophy insofar as it helps theology understand the truths of the faith. Mm-hmm. And then maybe there are things which are not disproven by the by supernatural and natural truths, which in individual lives seem important, subjectively important. Uh, they can still be, as long as they're not contrary to the things which we know more certainly, intellectually. And so there is a clear, clear hierarchy of truths that we can follow. And unfortunately, our world is relying on just that yeah, one. And everybody... Yeah. Everybody gets to define what it is. Ay, ay, ay. St. Thomas Aquinas, pray for us. We're going to get to the phones in just a moment. I would also note that uh, tomorrow the church celebrates the feast of St. Mary Magdalene. She's known as the Apostle to the Apostles, right? She is, for having bringing them the news that Christ has risen, yeah. uh, as we find in the Gospels. Yeah, very exciting. Uh, you sent out a, an email to all employees earlier in the day saying that uh, St. Mary Magdalene died near Marseille having finished her life in penitence, living in a grotto which is uh, preserved, and her remains can be seen to this day in the Church of Mary Magdalene, uh, right there in uh, Provence. Uh, that's, that's true. Uh, there's, uh, you know, a lot of history there, and there is also uh, very many interesting stories, but uh, unfortunately we probably won't have time to explore those today. Well... But uh, I think the interesting thing is that her relics remain there in... Uh, uh, in the area of Aison Provence, specifically in Saint Maximin de, uh, de, de Balm, de la Balm, and that uh, you can go there and you can see them, and you can see the cave, which is a, a, a site that is visitable, mm. uh, and you can see. The interesting fact about her is, she knew that the Lord loved her, and she knew, I think that she was becoming a holy woman through his help and her grace. But yet for her past life, she never stopped doing penitence yeah. because she knew that what she had done before, even unknowingly, selfishly, weakly, that that offended God and she was repairing for that even though Christ repaired for it fully and completely. We must do penance or we cannot be saved. Lines are open for you right now at 833-288-EWTN, 833-288. It is Open Line Friday. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985 or... Send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. Lines are open for you right now at 833-288-EWTN. If you have a question for Colin Donovan, 
288-3986. Before the break, we were uh, talking a little bit about St. Mary Magdalene. Well, right now, you can step into the past and experience the ancient beauty of icons with a beautiful crucifixion with Mary Magdalene arched icon available from EWTN's religious catalog. Let me tell you a little about it. It's fashioned by a dedicated team of skilled woodworkers and graphic restoration artists. This piece has a medieval weathered look produced through a complex process of machining and digital printing on a high-quality solid wood art block. This image, a reproduction of the piece originally painted by Francesco Hayez, it depicts our Lord crucified with Mary Magdalene kneeling at his feet, wiping them with her hair. It is uh, three inches wide, six inches high, an inch deep. It has a hole on the back for hanging. And it's available right now at EWTNRC.com. Buy Catholic, shop Catholic, EWTNRC.com. If you're ready now, let's go to the phones at 833-288-EWTN. We begin with Bob, a first-time caller who is driving through Virginia, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Hey, Bob, what's on your mind today, sir? Yes, we're driving in the car, three of us, and we're talking about the Eucharist. And we wanted to know, Colin, why we changed the um, consecration of the blood from cup to chalice, because it's not in the, in the Bible. There, these mm-hmm. Gospels don't talk about a chalice, they talk about the cup. Um, it, it, it's a translation issue. Remember that the obligation here is to in the case of the liturgy, is the normative text is a Latin text, and so that's that's governing. Uh, remember, <clears throat> whatever the language is describing a vessel that holds a liquid, uh, the used, word used in Scripture uh, would have been simply referring to cup in the ordinary, everyday sense. And like many things, they over time, especially by usage by the church, they became a, acquired a sacred meaning. Uh-huh. Uh, we don't speak uh, we don't speak of just clothing and coats and robes. We speak of vestments. We don't say cup. We say chalice. Yeah. Uh, you know, so words that were other otherwise used in common speech uh, acquire a sacred meaning and are very often then a word which is different from the common usage is set aside for that. Uh, you know, we don't say a hall, we say a church, based from the Greek word that uh, the assembly of the believers, ecclesia, uh, which was actually a political term. And so that would be the reason, and in translating it into the normative Latin, or it was in the Latin, and, t- and translating it into other languages, uh, the... Those norms have changed, the translation norms have changed a little bit. Probably in 1970, well, in fact, not probably, there was. The goal was to produce only a sense translation. It didn't have to be, you know, following the Latin necessarily. As long as it made sense, it uh, could explain the meaning of what was in the text, in, in in the missal, in the script, the missal text. And then under John Paul II, that was tightened up by a document, Liturgium Authenticum, in the um, early 2000s, which around 2000, which required that as wherever possible, the Latin, you were trying to get a cognate of the Latin in the particular language in which you were translating. So English has such a cognate in chalice. 
Uh, and that has certainly been the tradition in, in Latin language for the, all the years in which Latin was the language of the liturgy and the only language of the liturgy in the West. Uh, so that's carried on in the present translation, and it was changed, changed from the more generalized term of the 1970 Missal to the more specific term of the current Missal. Oh, very good. And uh, Bob, thank you so much for your call. That is hopefully helpful for you and your car, <laughs> car full of people there uh, driving <laughs> through Virginia. All right. That's a, that's a great conversation to be having uh, driving around, isn't it? Well, good. They should be talking about all kinds of other things, sports, how hot it is, and uh, talking about the, about the faith. Could Wonderful. Be, could be talking about Barbie. This is certainly a little more oh. important than Barbie. We'll hear enough of that in the coming days. Can we not mention that? No <laughs> doubt about it. That opens up a line for you right now at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Open line Friday with Colin Donovan here on EWTN. Let's go now to David, a first-time caller in Denver, listening on the great Catholic radio network. Hello, David. What's on your mind today, sir? Hey, Colin. Thanks for taking my call today. Sure, I, you're welcome. Thank you. I was wondering... Would you be able to talk a little bit about anonymous Christianity and the Church's current teachings um, surrounding anonymous Christianity coming out of Vatican II? Well, I didn't come out of Vatican II. That came out, I think, the head of Karl Rahner, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, The idea that there are many people all over the world who are anonymously Christians. They don't know the faith. They've not been baptized in the faith. But, you know, maybe they are exercising the natural virtues and, and these kinds of things. Uh, you know, and they may otherwise, we would, if they were, if they were baptized in, and, and had the supernatural mm-hmm. virtues, we would say they are good Christians. Uh, but early on, the church decided in the early centuries that uh, in the Pelagian controversies about whether, uh, you know, what, what constituted uh, sin and what constituted salvation, that natural virtue, we don't have a boops, bootstrap salvation. We can't raise ourselves up that the natural virtues cannot save, but only the gift of grace, which is communicated through baptism. So whatever was meant, I think, uh, uh, whatever Rahner, whoever said it first meant, uh, it doesn't, uh, doesn't override in any way, and it's certainly not the teaching of Vatican II. Now, there is a sense in which you could give that an orthodox meaning that is consistent with our long theological tradition. And that is, we know that there are people, if, you know, starting first with our baptized non-Catholic brethren, yeah. who are inculpable of knowing their obligations to be Catholic and to live the fullness of the faith. That inculpability, by lack of knowledge, unless it's feigned or otherwise, you know, a put-on kind of ignorance, is sufficient to deliver them from the judgment of God because he's judging their decisions of will to disobey him, to not adhere to the truth. That, however, doesn't necessarily and can't break through the barrier of not being baptized. Now, at least a number of popes have suggested and the catechism suggests that that salvation for those who living according to the light that they have, might be possible outside of the church by they following the light and the grace that God gives them, even though they never positively come to the church. 
what the church says there is we can't act as if that's the case. What we know is that baptism is the door. We know that inculpable ignorance, if it excuses non-Catholics who are baptized, but otherwise trying to live a good life, that's a good excuse. Whether it excuses the lack of coming to the faith of the unbaptized, God alone will judge. We have no revelation on that. We have a commission to go to the world to bring the gospel to them. So I would say that's where the theological side of that question. Calling them anonymous Christians, I think, is a great mistake because a Christian is somebody who is in Christ, and you either are or you Mm. are not. Uh, And if you are, you know it, and he knows it. Sure. Uh, David, is that helpful for you? That's incredibly helpful. I really appreciate the words. Could I ask one follow-up? Sure, sure. Sure, go ahead. It's always been my understanding that the Catholic Church's teaching is that each human will be judged based on their conscience. And I've always believed, I've always thought that that mm-hmm. came from this uh, anonymous Christianity belief. No. Is that the Church's official teaching? Yes. What else will we be judged by? You know, Scripture tells us that we don't know the depths of man. Nobody does, except God. Yeah. Except the Holy Spirit. Uh, God will judge our consciences. We fool ourselves all the time. Following your conscience is fine if your conscience is true. It will give you a true result. If it's correctly knowledgeable and you are willfully faithful to it. At best, it can hold you unaccountable before God for your ignorance of knowing what you ought to do in that circumstance. The ignorance is what protects. And the fidelity of your will, insofar as you know the truth, God will not hold us accountable otherwise. There's another saying which you commonly hear, which is illegitimate, and that is God does not expect the impossible. It doesn't expect somebody to jump through a hoop that they don't know exists. And that would be that would be what you're referring to. Yeah. It doesn't mean that everybody who judges, well, the magisterium says this, and of course, as a Catholic, I'm supposed to believe that. But I don't really. I've got very good arguments while it's wrong, and I'm going to go do my own thing. Uh, well, since we're talking about Aquinas, he would say you don't have faith, because if you fail to believe on one thing the Church affirmatively teaches is revealed, and it's something that is revealed, you don't have faith. So... That can't excuse error. Only ignorance can excuse acting erroneously. Appreciate your call, David, and uh, thanks for checking in from Denver. Ron, driving through Illinois, listening on Sirius XM, called, and he said, how do we know that the bread doesn't change uh, in the Lutheran Church just because they don't have valid orders? Why would that stop Jesus from changing it? Nothing stops Jesus except he told the church, the apostles, he spoke to them, do this in remembrance of me, and there is nothing in the apostolic tradition that suggests that those who have not had hands laid on them and given the, the, the priesthood, as the Timothy and Titus did, as Paul did to them in giving them the episcopacy, mm-hmm. uh, that they have, that they are fulfilling that command. Uh, so the church is uh, is the authority given to get receive the authority uh, to make that determination. Uh, otherwise, we're all the the world is just made up of theologians, and your theologians, your your judgment as to what's true and what's not true. 
uh, reigns, is valid for you. And that's, of course, the position of the world today going outside of the question of Christian questions. The position of the world today as well is true for you, Tom. Therefore, you know, that's good. You can go ahead and live yeah. that. But no, on these matters, it's, it, if it's not true for the church, it's not true for believers, even though they may falsely and ignorantly, as we just discussed, think that it is true. Sure. So the church knows that Lutheran orders are not valid, and the Pope has positively, uh, Leo XIII, positively de- declared that uh, Anglican orders were not valid because they lacked they lacked the communication of that power in the formula used to ordain them. Ron, thanks for your question. Drive carefully there in Illinois. In a moment, we'll talk with Nick in Tampa. We have lines open for you on Open Line Friday with Colin Donovan, 833-288-3986, here on EWTN. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. And lines are open for you right now at 833-288-EWTN. If you have a question for Colin Donovan, 833-288-3986. Here is Nick now in Tampa listening on Sirius XM, Channel 130. Hey, Nick, what's on your mind today, sir? Hi, gentlemen. How are you? Great. So I'm watching some YouTube videos uh, yesterday, and I noticed that some nuns, uh, have a wedding ceremony with Christ. And I wanted to know if it was sacramental or symbolic. Because they're very elaborate ceremonies. They're like wearing normal wedding gowns. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That, that's, not, that's not uncommon, especially for cloistered nuns who uh, you know, are act, not active in the world to do that. Um, it, it, it symbolizes, unlike a sacrament in which it effects... Uh, the giving of grace as part of a general, uh, general, the grand, general grant of salvation. Uh, it would be more akin to a sacramental, which a blessing or uh, a rosary or a holy object is. But I would say it's not even that. It's just this commitment to Christ. So it's not one of the seven sacraments of church, the church is not the sacrament of Mary, of marriage, but it certainly symbolizes them de- their desire to surrender completely and totally to Christ. And so this is not unlike a sacrament, sac- the sacrament of marriage, yeah, yeah. in which the ex- exchange of vows there is, as the language suggests in uh, the the vows of marriage, at least in the traditional ones, both civil and 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 the churches, mm-hmm. uh, and the churches still does, is that it's you know you're giving yourself, you're having a common life, uh, you're surrendering yourself. Pope John Paul II spoke of donation, the gift of don- donation, uh, and this is indeed this is actually what I did my uh, my my Ticino or little dissertation needed for the licentiate in Rome, uh, was on this topic, how this is the total self-gift. The other case which he talks about that, and this is a beautiful document, uh, Familiaris Consortio. You might want to read that. Familiaris, like family, Mm -hmm. Familiaris Consortio, in which he's talking about this idea of self-gift, complete self-gift, in two contexts. One is in marriage, where it is a sacrament. 
and the other is in celibacy and in virginity. So the priest or the male religion, the priest who makes promises or vows, or the male bro- the brother who makes vows, or the religious sister who makes vows, this is a, a desire to give yourself totally to Christ. And so there is, there is certainly an analogy between what takes place in the sacrament of marriage, but in a way it's more than an analogy because it's closer to the fulfillment that we all seek. Mm. And so Christ himself speaks in Matthew 11 how some become eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of God yeah. and, or foreshadowing of the kingdom of God, a working toward the kingdom of God, which seems very clear in the case of the pastoral work of the priest or the deacon or the mm. bishop. Uh-huh. Less clear, for example, maybe in the, the work of the cloistered nuns, but yet they are praying for the church. They offer themselves for the church. Yes. And E.W. Tan is a witness of the power of that offering, and it continues to this day. Yep with uh, the nuns praying for us here, and of course, mother, uh, in, in even happier climes praying for us as well, uh, realizing that, that, that goal to which she lived as a, as a religious. Yes. So that's the way in which it should be taken. In, in that sense, it's higher than a sacrament because it's the desire for the, for the end rather than simply the means, and the end is Christ. Is that helpful for you, Nick? Um, yeah, I just, so when I see them wearing, like, almost normal wedding gowns, I mean, how is that not, I I don't want to use the term sacrilegious, but it's almost like a mock wedding, and I feel like if anyone else did that, I I know what you're saying on how they're making vows to God and everything, but, like, the priests and deacons don't wear, like, wedding tucks and show up, they're just kind of wear their, you know, their gift of their vestments. Can we say that's explained by something I talked about earlier in the show, the nature of men and women? We look at things differently, and the church takes allowance of that. Yes, we do. All right. Appreciate your call there, Nick. Glad that you're checking in from Tampa. Earlier in the program, well, let me give you the phone numbers real quick. 833-288-EWTN if you have a question for Colin Donovan. 833 833- 288-3986. We are live on this Friday afternoon here on Open Line Friday on EWTN. So we were speaking earlier about St. Thomas Aquinas. Here's a rather timely question from Jason. Where do Protestants get the idea that Augustine and Thomas Aquinas were forerunners for the Reformation? Oh, that would be a good question because <laughs> uh, Thomas quotes Augustine copiously in his writings. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure who comes out on top, Aristotle regarding the philosophical thinking or Aquinas or Augustine regarding the religious thinking. Mm -hmm. So I I don't know what their argument uh, of that would be. Um, There's no evidence that Augustine considered himself an independent spirit, uh, independent of the church. In fact, he defended the church, saying specifically regarding the Donatists that if you don't have the church as your mother, you don't have God as your father. That's a pretty strong statement regarding people who... So I think you will find little evidence in Augustine that when he looks at the, uh, you know, at the church, understood already and clearly in those days, Mm -hmm. uh, one of the predecessors in North North Africa, St. Cyprian, had said, Uh, 150 years earlier regarding decisions of Rome, Rome has spoken. The matter is closed. It was understood where the authority lay for the whole church. 
when Augustine repeats in his writings what the, the books are at the councils of North Africa that are in the sacred scripture, it's the same list that at the Synod of Rome in 380, uh, and actually that the, the Pope uh, had written to, to a bishop in France with the list that the Synod of Rome had put down as to what the books are. And Rome's list and Augustine's list and Trent's list and our list today are all the same. I don't think he was a free thinker. I don't think he was a self-judger. Mm-hmm. I think he was a Catholic. He Amen. didn't need the appellation Roman in those days. He was simply a Catholic. Amen, brother. Preach it. <laughs> Appreciate that. And uh, Jason, thanks so much for your email. Here is Larry in California listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Larry, what's on your mind today, sir? Uh, good afternoon. Um, I, in one of St. Peter's letters to us, he says that, I believe it's right, love covers a multitude of sins. And I'm just, wh- <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> Well, uh, I guess there's a couple ways you could take that. One would be that uh, we're talking about Augustine. He's a famous saying, love and do what you will. Oh, well, that's good. If I love, (laughs) I I can just go and do what I want otherwise. Uh, But then again, you have to understand what love is. Um, You know, we have the, the, the principle of reparation in, uh, in the church. In other words, we understand, as our saint of the, the day tomorrow yeah. understood, that although she had been justified in Christ and a close friend of the Lord, she needed to repair what she had done voluntarily, not by necessity. Yeah. But that was part of her sincerity and her identity that she needed to repair. Well, w- when repairing, something that we can do is simply to love. To love, as Augustine said, love and do what you will. And, of course, love has to be defined in that case. Seeking the will of God mm. and doing that will when you know what it is, whether it's in the general sense of what God has revealed through the ch- Scripture, through the church, uh, through the magisterium, obviously, but in the, per- in the sense also of what you discern in your own life, what to do. This repairs. It covers a multitude of sins. It's not an excuse to go out and sin any more than confession right. is an excuse. Oh, I can go to confession on Saturday. Let's have a good time the other six days of the week. Well, the other five, because I'm not going to do it on <laughs> Sunday. I'm just going to do it Monday through Friday and go to confession uh. on Saturday. No, that's not what it means. It means that when you do love, when you do live in conformity, we are covering, we are repairing for the evils that we might have done in our past and which God has forgiven in the sacrament or through baptism. But yet, if we love him, if we know the offense it was to him, if we know the cost on Calvary, our love propels us to repair for them. And I think that's that's the context in which to understand it, not sin Monday through Friday, go to confession on Saturday. That is a falsification of what the church believes with regard to that sacrament, as it would be in this case as well. Larry, great call. Thank you so much for checking in from California. It is Open Line Friday with Colin Donovan. Last call for your call at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833 833- 
288-3986. This weekend, EWTN Radio remembers Father Benedict Groeschel on the 90th anniversary of his birth. We're going to be talking about it all day Sunday. His friends will be sharing their memories, and we'll also hear inspiring messages from the spiritual master himself. By the way, you can discover the life and legacy of Father Groeschel with our CDs, DVDs, and books from EWTN's religious catalog. Visit EWTNRC.com today. You knew Father Benedict Groeschel? I did, and I had uh, ate, ate with him a few times in different different situations. He, a, a wonderful man, and I think uh, the thing about s- sanctity is, as one of the founders of the CFRs, it's the gift that keeps on giving. You yes. look at the saints, the Mother Teresa, John Paul II, and you see that their lives continue through those whom they've influenced, and I think the CFRs give a tremendous witness of uh, of the the life of the founders of the Sierra yes. Apostoli and Grishel and mm-hmm. and all the other early ones. Yeah, fantastic. Uh, we're going to get back to the phones in just a moment here. Here's a question from Carlo. Carlo says, I have a Mormon friend. Can you give me some tips for how to explain that the Catholic Church is the true church? <laughs> Walk into that minefield. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it's sort of hard. The The whole basis of that is I've had a couple conversations with, uh, you know, with a with a pair of Mormons. They always come in pairs mm-hmm. um, to the door, and they wanted to argue the Trinity. And their argument was they had this warm feeling in their heart about God and the nature of God. And that was the argument basically. Wow. So it, it's hard to argue with that mentality. Uh, of course, they have, they have their own version of the King James Bible, mm-hmm. uh, as do the Jehovah Witnesses. Um, they have a different idea. They don't have a Trinitarian faith, which caused Rome to say their baptisms are actually invalid because mm-hmm. uh, they're not trying to do what the church tries to do when it baptizes into Christ. So it's very hard to argue particularisms when they're convinced that the intellectual structure of their faith uh, leads them to these conclusions. We don't share that structure because we adhere to scripture and tradition, the magisterium, and you're arguing from those basically, you know, into the wind because you can't argue against them. But I think... A good, a good place to look for that will be in uh, the archives online of, of uh, the Journey Home program. Because yes. uh, over the years, Marcus, and I don't know if his son has interviewed any Mormon converts uh, in his time at the helm there. But certainly Marcus did over the years. And they'll have some good tips on how, how the people who then came into the church their intellectual view, their view of these things changed over time and what influenced them. And I think for anybody dealing with a particular category of non-Catholic, those stories are extremely helpful for showing that because it shows the path by which. And I think Marcus made a comment uh, in a show, it might have been the one which I as a, never not a Catholic, at least as a Christian, uh, that I did with him years ago. My wife was the producer then. Uh, ah. so she, she wasn't the producer yet, my wife yet, but got me on and we talked about, uh, Marcus and I talked about, you know, how upbringing as Catholics. But I think the, sh- the point he often made was the authority issue keeps coming around in those discussions 
because the church claims authority, the other church's authority is usually their own understanding of the sacred scripture, mm. whether it's the Bible or the Book of Mormon or, or whatever. Uh-huh. Um, and if it's Mormonism, of course, they claim that their apostles have authority to change things. And therefore, it's the equivalent to not having a steady authority if your apostles can just reverse the doctrine. Yeah. That doesn't make a lot of sense mm-hmm. logically. But the authority question is always key in those things, but you have to know where people are coming from, and you have to know what has, what has influenced them in the past. What's a place to get your, you know, intellectually to get in and sort of find a space where you can actually talk to them on some level that they'll be listening. And I think the Journey Home program has been a great series for over two decades now yeah. to do that yeah. in doing that and, and of course showing those pathways i think pretty much all of the archives are available on our website too i would think so i'm not sure about all of the ones from the tape era uh maybe we, not that was long ago it was indeed <laughs> but we've got a lot of them uh, a lot just of them yes. by going to ewtn.com here is art in covington kentucky listening on the great sacred heart radio am 740 art what's on your mind today sir Yes, sir. Thank you for taking my question, and uh, hope you all have a good weekend. Thank you. Uh, my question is, is is the Trinity. The church mm-hmm. teaches that God the Father, God the Son, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit are all equal. Somewhere along the line, I guess somewhere around the first or second century, I guess there, there was people that said that that wasn't true, and the church probably had a, one of the councils to figure that out. In the whole, in the in the Old Testament, God the Father is, is it's God the Father. He's in the burning bush. It's just God the Father. He, even uh, uh, in Genesis, God the Father said, "Well, I'm going to send someone to uh, take care of your original sin," and uh, he didn't mention Jesus at all. And of course, he sent Jesus. So and, and then and then when Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist, or he was in the river. Uh, God the Father spoke, and the Holy Spirit uh, was there, and all three of them were there. And then at, at the Transfiguration, a month or so before the crucifixion, uh, they were up in the clouds, and, and God the Father was there, and Jesus, and uh, of course some of the apostles, and uh, uh, the Holy Spirit. And my, my question is, it's not, okay, the Church says all three Three and one, the Trinity, they're all equal. I'm just saying, I'm just asking, do you have any idea? How did the church come to that idea? Jesus revealed it. He said, the Father and I are one, distinguishing between the Father and himself. Uh, John the Apostle said, and the Word was with God, and the Word became flesh. That's Jesus, so the Word was with God. Um, In the... uh, in the promise of the Holy Spirit, he says both that uh, I will, uh, he will send the Spirit, and that he will, Christ will send, we will send the Spirit. So there is always this, it is, from a human point of view, they're not, they're not equal in the sense that the persons, Father, Son, and Spirit are indistinguishable, but in the sense that they are all one God. They all share the 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 full the nature of the Godhead, 
and all of what we can say about when we say we got the God is eternal applies to all three all powerful all knowing all loving all just all merciful all any any adjective you can apply to God applies to all three persons the distinction is given by John the Apostle there in the Gospel of John he is the word of the Father now in the Old Testament these distinctions aren't made because it was left to Christ to reveal the Trinity the Trinitarian nature of the Godhead yet the fathers of the church looking at what was said in the Old Testament can find hints of it there when the when God said let us make man in our image the Jewish position is well, he's talking to the angels I believe but there's a Trinitarian frame of reference that can be applied there as well the Father the Son and the Holy Spirit. let us make man yeah when it appears in the burning bush the fathers say most of them who have spoken on this that that appearance was Christ because wherever there is this theophany this manifestation of the divinity as there would be in the incarnation it is even Christ in anticipation of that so these things in that were where God manifests himself in some way in the old covenant it's Christ just not given a name just not distinguished simply God so that God doesn't mean God the God the Father although the Jews understand it they refer to him as father but they would deny that they understand father there in the way that we understand it they don't understand it in that personalization way that we do like you know he's the father of the family there's the son there's the you know this the wife the daughters yeah they yeah. didn't understand it just God is father without any without any other distinction so the distinctions came with Christ and his distinguishing between himself and the Father, but yet claiming to be God. Be before Abraham came to be, I am. Yep. And the scandal could only have come about because they used the words which even the priest could only pronounce once a year on Yom Kippur when he splashed the blood on the horns of the, uh, of the, of the altar of sacrifice. Uh, and this was the one time it was uh, allowed to be spoken. We think that was uh, uh, Yahweh or some other com combination of those three consonants and uh -huh. vowels, but that's one the Jehovah Witnesses say it's Jehovah. In fact, that was not uncommon for a few centuries. But whatever the actual divine name was, it was couldn't be spoken. And this is why they found that offensive. And ultimately, of course, why, when everything else was set, a uh, set aside, it was why Caiaphas condemned him. Wow. Because he claimed to be the equal of God. Mm -hmm. No, he was God. That's not equal. That is God. Yep. So, when the church speaks of God, everything that God does is done by where it begins what is to be done and who does it you could look at it that way and augustine tried to explain this by taking the uh the human mind and saying well the word of the human mind this is the intellect the intellectual the intellect mm -hmm. and the love is the will it's the acting part of us and so by analogy again it's a mystery we can't get to the nature of the trinity by analogy the Son is the Word of the Father, 
And so wherever the Father speaks, it's the Son doing it, the burning bush or, or other places, the three angels. The three, one speaks, and these three, maybe Trinitarian symbolism there, that one who speaks Christ, that he's the Word, he speaks for the Father. And so at the, uh, at the baptism in the Jordan, again, we see the three persons, and the, he is called, Jesus is called the Son. Son, Word, just the same reality is being spoken of there. So the church has understood it completely, and from the, from the first century, the, the Father, Son, and Spirit were, were known. Uh, theology had to reflect on it, and the church finally approved, affirmed uh, those reflections in its doctrine and teaching that uh, developed over time. That's certainly true, uh, but that's because the church was promised the Holy Spirit to lead it into all truth, and so it did contemplate and think upon and, and to formulate ways of explaining it. But in all of these cases, wherever God speaks, it's the Word. And wherever He acts, it's the Spirit. As in the creation, as in the baptism of Jesus, as in the sacraments, as today in the church, as the soul of the church, acting on, carrying on the mission of the second person in the world until He comes again. This is the Spirit working in the church. Why the church will sometimes say the Holy Spirit is the soul of the church. It all reflects that Trinitarian life within God, but it's all analogous to that. Only God really understands it, what we're doing and we're trying and we're doing about the best we can. It's all we can do. That's it. It's all yep. we can do. Art, thank you so much for a great uh, question there. Do appreciate that. Ronald in Pennsylvania, I'm so sorry. Uh, we're just about to play the closing theme here, so we don't have enough time to get to your caller today. However, if you would call us back either on Monday or on the day of your choice, uh, we would love to put you at the head of the line. So please call back uh, at a time, uh, you know, more hopefully a little earlier in the hour so that we, you know, we don't want to leave anybody at the altar here, right? We don't, I don't. So to speak, so to speak. And uh, Colin Donovan, thank you so much, and I uh, hope you have a wonderful weekend. You're welcome, and the, you as well. I appreciate family. that. And stay hydrated, everybody. Absolutely. Absolutely. On Monday, it's going to be Father John Tregilio talking apologetics. We're looking forward to that. On behalf of our fantastic team here, I'm Tom Price along with uh, Colin Donovan. Be sure to check out the podcast of today's program if you didn't get to hear it today in total by uh, going to EWTNRadio.net, EWTNRadio.net. Have a great weekend. God bless.